Welcome to the Five Points Church Planting Podcast. We have a guest who is a longtime friend uh, joining us today, and I'm so thankful because uh, it's been a hard few days for me, and maybe he can be an encouragement. I know this will be old news by the time our listeners um, hear this, but uh, Josh, Jim, uh, the Crimson Tide lost to Texas, and that hurt. Um, and then, and and then, I think this hurts more. My top two players on my fantasy team are Aaron Rodgers and Garrett mm, Wilson. Yeah, that was who's tough. the receiver. And uh, so I no longer have a quarterback of any value, and my receiver will no longer receive passes because the backup quarterback for the Jets is is not great. So I, I need encouragement from both Josh and Jim. Well, you can a- switch on over from Crimson to Garnet. Yeah, that's right. Jim is a Florida State <laughs> fan, so he's he's pretty high about right now. Of course, by the time this comes out, it could we will be- have beaten Clemson and be well. There you go. <laughs> that's what play. I like to we'll hear. Play, so anyway, and Josh being in Louisiana, but not an LSU fan, he's safe. Uh, but he's an Alabama fan like me, so he's hurting as well. Grieving all the same. Yeah, but the Saints won. They got off to a great start. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, there's a lot of uh, joy and happiness around here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are thankful to have Jim Davis joining us today. Jim and I were both pastors in Oxford, Mississippi, and someone told me when I moved there that I needed to meet him, that he was a great guy. And more importantly, he was the only other pastor in town that did not root for Ole Miss. And um, so we met, our children went to the same school, and we did something uh, a little unusual, but it was a good experience. We served on a search committee to find a headmaster for a classical Christian school, and that was a very insightful and interesting process. And somehow, I believe Jim and I managed to not screw it up. I feel like we did pretty well. I do. I do too. So, Jim, without further ado, if you would just give us a little bit of information, a a short bio, if you will, about yourself. Yeah, I grew up in Orlando, uh, went to Florida State, which is where I became a Christian, as one does at Florida State. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I became a Christian through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. And um, as one does, soon found myself overseas as a missionary and new believer. (laughs) And and God really used that. So we spent uh, four years in Italy before coming back to do campus ministry at Mississippi State. And uh, then went back to Italy to help plant an Acts 29 church in Southern Italy. Then went to uh, Oxford, Mississippi, where we were a part. I was on the pastoral staff team of what I would call a church uh, reboot, a church plant reboot. Um, And that church is Acts 29 now. And then uh, I got my seminary degree at RTS Orlando and moved back to Orlando in 2018 and have been pastoring this church since my wife um, has graduated RTS as well with her master's in counseling and practices here in Orlando. And I have four kids, 15, 13, 12, and eight. Wow. And so Jim, tell us a little bit about how you started the podcast that I'm familiar with as in heaven. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about how that came to be. 
So it's funny, everything that, that people see from us now, really, all, they all started as a, as a local church. It's been appropriate for a number of reasons to have them come in and preach or teach, um, you know, an adult Sunday school class or something. So I did this podcast that people could opt into, and it turned into a season on a topic. The first season was Orlando ministry. Second season uh, was... Uh, I was actually on vacation with Mike Aitchison, who you might know, a church planter, a PCA church planter here in Orlando. And uh, that's when we, it was when George Floyd was killed and we decided to do a season on uh, a Christian conversation on race and justice. And because it was May of 2020, nobody was doing anything and we could get every guest we wanted. And so we, the way we, we kind of have a narrative arc, there's a beginning and an end, uh, beginning, middle and end to the podcast, uh, much like you would a Sunday school class. And so... Uh, the a value I had is that we would record pretty much all the episodes before it would be launched because I didn't want every week to be thinking uh, who we're going to have next week. And uh, because we did it that way, we teased it. And when we did, it was uh, the Gospel Coalition approached us about acquiring the podcast. And we said, what does it mean to be acquired? They said, we have no idea. We've never done this before. <laughs> uh, basically, no money was exchanged. We just agreed that it's our podcast, but we will house it there. And if anybody else can be blessed, that's great. It was, you know, a local church project, but if anybody wants to listen. And so then, but even as we were still recording season two, I knew I wanted season three to be on de-churching. Again, Orlando, that is our context where, you know, if you know, Barno would say that we're the sixth most de-churched city in the U.S., which basically means the world. Um, but, um, so yeah, that that's how the podcast co- podcast got going, and uh, season three um, will finish. We'll have our last episode. will be live at TGC in a couple weeks. So Jim, you have a book that just came out, the Great Dechurching, and I know how it is connected to the podcast. But tell our listeners a bit more about the birth of that of that book of that work yeah so we we knew we wanted to do de-churching but we soon realized there's no real data out there so when my wife was at rts she was taking apologetics with justin holcomb and she wanted to do a research paper on de-churching and he said that's great but there's nothing to research there's nothing out there and we really didn't want our podcast just to be two pastors anecdotally putting their you know finger in the air and and giving our thoughts uh and so we we really did a lot of uh, research and a friend, Skylar Flowers, who is in Oxford now at Grace Bible Church, connected us to Ryan Burge, who is a social scientist. Uh, I mean, top-notch social scientist, also Christian. And so we commissioned him and Paul Jupe to do a nationwide uh, peer review, academically peer-reviewed quantitative study. Uh, and, and we wanted him to pr- prove or disprove this thesis that we kind of thought was true, but we no one had ever proven it before. And the thesis was that we are currently in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. And so he quantitatively proved it. Um, so if you talk about percentages, the, the previous largest shift was actually the 25 years post-Civil War, which mm-hmm. most people don't realize that. That was the largest religious shift our country had ever, ever seen. Our shift now over the past 25 years is 25% larger than that going the opposite direction. And then if you want to talk about numbers, I mean, it's because the country is so much larger now. We're talking about more people than the first and second great awakenings and every Billy Graham crusade combined because we've learned about 40 million adult Americans who used to go to church on at least a monthly basis. That's how we're defining de-churching. Now go less than one time per year. And so we proved that. 
uh, we did all this for the podcast, but when word got out that we we, we kind of just stumbled into it, that we own the most comprehensive study ever performed on dechurching, and we've proven that we're in the largest shift, then publishers really uh, got interested and started coming to us. And we decided, well, let's let's do this project, let's do the book and put the podcast on hold so that the podcast can be more informed and more helpful. And that's what we did. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Just, yeah, startling statistics as you kind of run through those uh, in, the, in the book, um, just about what, you know, what is this the church kind of phenomenon and 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 that that decline that you speak of as you went through the statistics as you thought through a lot of your um observations and conclusions that came from that what was the maybe what was the most surprising thing you learned in that process well three come to mind quickly uh one is that de church people are not monolithic and and if you know social media pundits and the new york times is all we're really watching we would think that every de church person has left the church, left the faith, deconstructed, had a bad experience, and will never come back. Well, that, that's true for some, and we don't want to minimize those stories, and there's real hurt there. But over three quarters of the 40 million, so 30 million people, dechurched what we call casually. So we we, we put, we have a casually dechurched and dechurched casual T category. Um, and so we, we learned that the number one reason for dechurching was I moved. I mean, that, that we didn't expect that. Mm -hmm. um, we also found that um, that the the majority of de church evangelicals are willing to come back today, mm. and and we did we we divided we we had machine learning um, which is an algorithm work through this massive amount of data and, and come up with profiles uh, depending on common answers and other things. And there are, there are millions of evangelicals out there who are more orthodox, don't go to church, but they're, they're more orthodox. They have higher orthodoxy scores on Nicene Creed Christianity than people who still go to church. And they are willing to come back. They've had no bad experience. They've casually, casually de-churched. So that was, that was interesting. And then one thing that we stumbled on um, that Brian Burge has developed this, and, and he's really the expert in it, but the more education an evangelical has, the more likely they are to stay in church. So only 3% of evangelicals with master's degrees have de-churched. So this really debunks the, the boogeyman of higher secular education taking our kids away. Now, I think there's some other reasons that yeah. we feel like it is, but education is not the problem. Education is actually helping. Uh, one more thing that you know we, we learned. So the hardest age, the hardest stage of life to maintain your faith is between the ages of 13 and 30. And there are really three stages there, high school, for most people, college, and then starting your new young professional life. Um, but for in the college years, those who are involved in college in both a church and a campus ministry, they're three times more likely to continue going to church. Um, now there is some selection bias in there because those who are more likely are more like more likely to continue are more likely to opt into those two things. But even so, um, now that's not true if it, they're just involved in a campus ministry or if they're just involved in the church. But when you put those two things together, it makes a big difference. So those are that, that's four things. Those are four things that come to mind. Well, let me let me say one more. We also learned that dechurching is largely a lower class, lower education, lower income phenomenon. Um, it, it kind of hits the far extremes the most. And so we would think that the middle and upper class would be the ones dechurching, but it really are, are the people who are most affected by life transitions, like moving, like becoming a single parent. That causes those with less income to have to work longer hours and more unusual hours. And so that, that makes sense. 
so the the dechurching is not a philosophical driven uh, i don't believe in god i don't believe in these teachings that i heard as a child this is um you know just untenable for me as as a thinker it has more to do it seems what you're saying is um things that transpire in the course of your life that are difficult and challenging and and hard that move you away from the church. So I, I will say, while certainly there are those people out there, sure. yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, who the issue is a belief issue. Um, sociologists have long held the categories of belief, belong, behave. And especially in evangelicalism, uh, we're seeing that what, what we're looking at is a belonging issue more than it is a belief issue. Right. Yep. So, Jim, when I was the first church that I planted deep south bible yep, belt madison and noticed that people were coming back to the church that the church plant was a on ramp for people to find their way back in the church but you you've ministered in the deep south we were both in oxford you know that people don't like to come out and tell you hey i haven't been in church and here's why they just come back to the church and they really don't want you to know that they've been gone. Now, we have listeners to this podcast all over North America and in other parts of the globe, thankfully. Uh, so this is a very Southern thing. It seems to be very unique to the South. When I lived in Orlando, uh, I was really surprised by the number of people that would just say, um, yeah, I don't go to church. And I'd, I'd never really experienced that before. The topic was either avoided in the deep South or uh, people would honestly and frankly just lie to you. And, uh, and by the way, some of our listeners may be thinking, Hey, isn't Orlando in the South Uh, from American cultural perspective, uh, Jim, this will make you laugh, but I think that actually the line is Tallahassee. Um, Yeah. Tallahassee, Jacksonville. You can make an argument that Jacksonville has a lot of it. I would say Orlando used to be the line. I'm third generation Orlando and my, grandparents and parents have southern accents but sure no no longer yeah no yeah yeah and uh not when i lived there uh but i loved it it was gosh it was a great experience i really enjoyed orlando um and and miss it enjoy going back to visit um although i'm usually being dragged to either universal or disney and yeah well so jim as you think about this book and you think about pastoral ministry, as you know, this is a church planning podcast and we have a lot of church planners that listen, but we also have a lot of pastors of established church, steeple churches. That's what we like to say. As you think about your book, how is this a tool for church planters and how is this a tool for those who are in established churches? Well, I think for both, a big part of our ministry is is understanding where we are. And and so this came out of, like, we began, we saw this Barna study that said that only 6% of of the Orlando metropolitan area was evangelical. And we were like, that's, wait, that's the same as New York City and Seattle. But our context feels so different than New York City and Seattle. And it hit us, oh, because the majority of people who don't go to church here used to go to church. Well, that's a different animal altogether. They've got for good or for bad. They have history with the church. They have a foundation. And so we started building on that. So a, what are, a lot of our research for those who um, 
who are in areas that are experiencing dechurching, we want to create categories. Our hope is you would be able to, within five questions of talking to somebody who used to go to church, to understand what kind of dechurched person they are and develop in your mind a path forward. Because some of these people, the, the dechurched mainstream evangelicals, that's a category we developed. It's 2.5 million people who literally just need to be asked back. I mean, I, and I've been doing this in my personal ministry, uh, and I, I think I'm batting a thousand right now on inviting them to church and they come because they're, they're believers. Like you're saying, they, they know they should be in church. Uh, they're sometimes, you know, in the deep South, you're going to feel more, a little more cultural shame than you would in places like Orlando, Nashville, Atlanta. But like, I, I'll, you know, when I was in Oxford, I was borderline religious about CrossFit and I, I've been pretty consistent since I came back, but, uh, I haven't been in three months and I'm just dreading walking in the door and all my CrossFit friends seeing me walk back in yeah. all out of shape. And I, I, you know, I get that. I think that's kind of, you know, what people, especially in smaller towns, when you might be going back to the same church, how people would feel when in reality, we're just thrilled they're back. We're thrilled. And so some having some of those conversations, man, we would love for you to come back. Come on, come to our community group. So some people just need a nudge. So knowing who you're looking at, some people have stories that they're going to need to be in, in your home at your dinner table before that happens. Some people have, uh, have real hurt. So the ex-evangelical category that we develop, which is a hard term because it's defined different ways in different places. But these are people who have real church hurt, say they'll never go back largely to an evangelical church. They might go back to some other expression of a church and a church plant, even if it's evangelical, might fit that category. Um, but they, they're going to want to know why, why would this never happen in your context? So spending time with the leaders and asking yeah. them questions. Tell me about your experience and, and affirming you. It's a good thing you left that church in many cases. I would leave that right. church. You should leave that sure. church. This is not what Jesus wants his church to be. But let me, although we're not perfect, let me tell you what we're shooting for. Um, church planting in general, I'm convinced is uh, getting harder for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and I would say it's going back to the normal hard work of evangelism and discipleship because, it, you know, no, no knock on your talent in, it was Madison Heights, right? And that's right. What year did you, what year did you plant that church? Uh, we started in 06. Okay. So I've got this theory that it, when people who planted in the late nineties and early two thousands, whatever it was, whatever your, your theological stream, you were doing something unique that wasn't being done, whether it's expository preaching or contemporary music or, you know, relevant messages and other streams. It just, it was new and different. So we had Christians who would move from one church to another. And these church plants were very successful very quickly. And I think as we think about our church planters that we're sending out, we're holding them to the same kind of standards. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's, unrealistic because that was a unique cultural era i think and so we need to be financially committed to our church plants for longer periods of time we need to free up the pastors from the the expectation that they be self-sufficient in two or three years we need to free them up to do the work of evangelism and discipleship and that's going to take a long time but that's the kind of work that that the church is here to do yeah we're finding jim that you know, in the suburban context, not us in particular, but just in talking to other church planners, that the model has been previously in a suburban context, hey, you have three years of support, go do it, you can do it. Um, and most of the guys that I'm talking to across the board in suburban context are saying, it can't be done in three years anymore. Right. And it needs to be a longer uh, runway. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that that's true. It's true in a lot of places. I also think if, if the number one reason for dechurching is I moved, then mm -hmm. especially in cities that are receiving a lot, well, every, every city is receiving new people just sure. from all the shuffling, some cities more mm -hmm. than others. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, what does it look like to mobilize the Christians around you who are a first point of contact? So realtors, school administrators, you know, when they meet mm -hmm. somebody, if they realize they're a Christian, you know, instead of playing it cool and assuming they'll find a church inviting them hey i i go to a great church or you know i'd love even if it's not this church i'd love to help you find a church because when people move they're at the highest risk of de-churching mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and then just thinking through why is it that the church is so hard for the lower income lower education or those who get off the traditional american path i get married or go to college get married then i have kids and we stay married you know, you get off that path and things get very hard for it. institutions in America tend to work less for you. And unfortunately, the American church is an American institution. I mean, for, for the most part, obviously, it goes way back before America. But it's one of those institutions that tend to not work for that group. So just thinking like, all right, what, how, how, does, how does our church uh, minister to uh the woman who had a kid before she got married or the woman who got divorced or the man who lost his wife and and mm -hmm. all the challenges that it creates so mm -hmm. those are just just some of the things i mean I, I think i think all of us need you know in established churches i think a lot of us and I, i'd put us in that context we needed to take a long look in the mirror um, and we need to really, you know, we, we practice exit interviews, you know, different churches call them different things, but it's not just about the front door. We need to understand why people are going out the back door. That's right. And we're not going to know that if we don't sit down and say, brother, we're going to bless you on your way. Would you help us understand uh, so we can get better? And some things they're going to say, and you're like, yep, that's, a, that's just a, not a good expectation for our church. Other people are going to say things you're like, yep, that was hard to hear, but we needed to hear it. Um, and so doing that hard work to look at the, the back door, I, you know, I'll tell you in our church between 2018 and 2021, we lost 80% of our church, Whoa. 80%. And, uh, we, you know, we took, I want to, you know, I, I, we took a long, hard look in the mirror and, mm -hmm. uh, there were, there was a division on what we thought, uh, what we liked and didn't like about what was in the mirror and the decisions that I and some other people made, uh, did not sit well with a lot of people. And, and I, I get it. I hate that, that, you know, that's hard but for the longevity of the church. We chose to have some conversations and do some things and not say some things. And, um, and that's how it went. But, you know, it's, if, if the church is, uh, and that's scary, like that's a scary thing to not know with, if all these people leave, when might even have a job. But if mm -hmm. the church is like a like a sink, you have a faucet and a drain, and so for for a couple of years both were wide open, and we're just looking right. at that water level, thinking like, are we going to be able to pay the bills? But once we had established the culture and the ministry philosophy that we believed in, that drain shut. Now our problem mm -hmm. is on the other end. We we don't have enough space for for these people. So now I'm not saying that'll that's how it'll work for everybody, but uh, I'm just saying it was scary to look yeah. at that back door. And, and make some changes. Yeah, I, uh, several things that you said that are uh, uh, helpful, Jim. Thank you. Uh, I, you know, as, a, as looking at some of the uh, information from the book and that you're expressing now, I mean, I, I think even the sustainability models that we have for church planning and what a lot of folks probably listening to our podcast, the language or conversations around kind of tent making ministries is coming about because the 
the need for church plants and some of the statistics you gave as far as how how many churches were actually planting versus that which are are closing annually and the kind of ground that we're losing amidst that um folks are beginning to look up saying we've got to be more aggressive but the the funding is not really holding the the finance is really not there and people don't really they have a very high expectation for for what's going to be um it was you know we were you know, our, our three-year plan here turned quickly into six uh, years <laughs> as far as getting to sustainability. And we're still... That's just like my seminary plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, similar. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, I do, I think that's uh, helpful and to understand. And then to the, I mean, I think the the points you make about understanding the back door and, and exiting views, I, I would say that is something from an established church, you know, standpoint, uh, has been language of people trying to be more uh, intentional about how they engage that or think through that process. But that's true of the church plan as well. Um, in the years that I've done church planning in several different cities, uh, both major and smaller mid-sized cities, metro cities, um, uh, it's been alarming to me. Like this is the first place I've really been where I'm seeing that kind of revolving door kind of happening at the church planning level. You know, you can hit all your marks. You could do all the things that, that bring people in and hold them. Uh, but what keeps them there uh, is different uh, than what it was, you know, even when we were, when I was with Hunter at, at Madison Heights. So uh, uh, yeah, super helpful. As you've, as you thought through that, you've expressed some of this and some of what you've said so far, but maybe give us some further reflection on just, you know, as you think about your own pastoral ministry, you gave some reflection on the experience of kind of losing so many there as you think through, especially that kind of statistic about so so much of the percentages of those leaving the church or in that kind of middle, lower middle class kind of um, demographic. What, what is How has it shaped your pastoral ministry in the way you engage, you know, your local community, the city there where you live? Well, let me, before I get to that, let me, I want to, I want to affirm and say something about something you said in the beginning there. I, you know, I do think we're churches, established churches who want to plant churches and church planters. We need to address a changing tension between economy and kingdom impact in terms of the size of churches that we plant. Yeah. It, it, it really seems, I, I've become convinced, uh, Ryan Burge has done a lot of we've talked a lot about this and I've become convinced we're, we're seeing, and we will continue to see in most cities and i don't this might be not as true in small towns but in cities a hollowing out of the middle-sized church so like from 100 to 150 to 400 it's just not financially sustainable to to it's hard to you know you're it's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars for a full-time pastor you know with all, you know everything going on it's going to cost a lot of money to figure out where you're going to meet to rent the space it's going it, to it it's it's becoming less and less economically viable and so you do have the smaller churches that don't have the overhead or can, you know, you're going to have somebody who has a tent making ministry. But then once you pass that 400 size, it tends to be more economically viable. So it's hard because you could make an argument where the, the biggest kingdom impact in a city is in that middle range, having lots of churches in that middle range. But it's becoming economically difficult. So that's something we're going to have to wrestle with. Uh, in my own ministry, um, you know, I... I find myself preaching uh, about the value of corporate worship and church membership more than I ever have, because I'm asked a lot like, okay, I'm, I'm a Christian. I do my Bible study, you know, my quiet time. I have my tennis mom's Bible study, whatever. Why do I need to go to church? And, and so I find myself addressing that both so that people in the church hear that. Well, so they hear it for themselves so that they're able to communicate that to other people. And then, you know, you kind of, you, you always want to preach to the, 
people you hope will be there. <laughs> and, and you just find those chairs, those people begin to show up. So I, I try and really, when I'm with a de-church person, I try to, uh, I want to understand their story. And then, you know, Tim Keller says contextualization is uh, f- understanding the, someone's storyline and showing them how they find their happiest ending and ending in Jesus. And so just understanding the storylines, whether it's uh, divorce, kid, you know, before marriage, like I said, or kids sports, kids activities. I had a mom come up to me and, uh, and she asked me, she's a Christian and sweet lady. And she said, would you ever consider having a Saturday evening service? And my first thought was like, well, if I have a Saturday evening service, I'm disqualified from leading that service because I have four kids in my home and I'd never see them. Um, but I, I just said, well, tell me why a Saturday evening service would be helpful to you. And she said, well, I've got three kids in seven travel leagues and Sunday mornings never available, but once a month we can do a Saturday evening. So, okay, I, I hear that. Uh, I, I think we're going to need to readdress our priorities because when we raise kids who are not regularly right, going yeah. to church, we shouldn't be surprised when they leave our house and don't start going to church. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are the kind of things it, from a preaching level that I, um, that I find myself doing more of. Uh, you know, in, in our context, in the Reformed world, membership is usually the word that we use for some, you know, in other podcasts, we say medium walls. So you have the, the, the church, you know, the more attractional church that anonymity is fine. Entertainment is the value. We're not going to speak on certain things that might deter people away. Um, and, and, and there's just not a lot of discipleship. So that, that's no walls. And that's, that's actually, although some of these people really do have a big front door because people come in the back door, if you really pay attention is just as large. And then you go to the other extreme though, and have really high walls, like shiny, happy people walls, and just keep trying to keep your kids from the sin of the world. Well, your kid sins already in the church, but just understanding that we, we want to know our people. We want to call our people to what it is Jesus calls them to we want to walk with them, pray with them. And, uh, and so in our context, that's caused us to think through how big is too big to be able to do that. Um, there's a size that, that where we will lose that. And, and that's why church planting is so important. That's why our greatest contribution over Lord willing next 20 years will be that. So anyway, those are a few things we've done. I, I find myself preaching to, uh, exile more. Uh, it's, the norm for God's people over the course of redemptive history, and even today in the global East and South, is that uh, they live in a type of cultural exile, and they exercise their influence in society from the margins of power, not from the seat of power. They're, I think I said in the book something like, you can, um, we can be the city on, on the hill without being on Capitol Hill. So mm-hmm. those, are the, those are the kinds of things I can see, uh, you know, from knowing people that's changing the way that, that we think through discipleship. We've, our, our church planting pipeline, we've totally uh, redone over the past year, and we're really excited about what that looks like um, because we don't want to build a, you know, a mega church. We want to figure out how can we have the biggest kingdom impact in Orlando over the next 20 years. Yeah, right. That's good. Yeah. So, Jim, we've both lived in Oxford. Oxford, Mississippi, and Orlando. Um, Oxford is, if you separate out the town from the university, it it truly is a small town. Yeah. And Orlando is a large multi-ethnic city. Um, so I like to of, say Orlando is a bunch of small towns that grew together. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, <laughs> yeah. that is that is true. If you if you think about your book and you think about the great dechurching, what 
value is the information contained in the book for a guy, a church planner, a pastor, let's say who's in a small town like Oxford, who's in a large multi-ethnic city like Orlando, who might be in a urban setting. What can they lean into this book and find that can be of value and help to them in the throes of pastoral ministry? Well, I, I still go back to the five profiles because especially the four profiles of dechurched evangelicals. And because there are about 15 million dechurched evangelicals in our study, um, eight million of them are what we call cultural Christians. And so they're largely a white group of people uh, who don't have any pain point with the church, positive feelings for the church. They don't go, but only 1% of them believe that Jesus is actually the son of God. And so, it, it, and so we're, they, they're probably the Jesus parable, the weeds and the wheat. Right. Don't be surprised when some who look like they were in the kingdom aren't. Well, in the deep South, I saw a lot of that. And, and so I would, um, I'd want to understand, oh, I'm, I'm looking at somebody who's probably never a believer to begin with. And that's going to shape the way I'm not just going to, I'm not just going to invite them to church. I want to communicate the gospel to them and why I, uh, and how their their story finds its happiest ending in Jesus. But then I meet a mainstream evan church evangelical, and they do seem to be a believer, and they already know what they need to do. And so I, so having those categories, I think, is helpful both in the Deep South and in the uh, the medium of, like, Orlando, and then in urban context, too. Although in urban context, I think a lot of your D-Church people are going to be the newer people to town. A lot of the people who have been there for generations are, are truly unchurched. But we have to understand the generational opportunity before us because there is some low-hanging fruit, but by all statistical likelihood, the children of the de-churched will themselves be unchurched. And right. so there's yeah. a generational impact in front of us that can be had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim, it's been a, a delight to, to have you on the podcast today. So much uh, good information, um, helpful, challenging things that'll provoke thoughts. I know in my own heart uh, over the course of the uh, next several weeks, as I kind of unpack some of those things and kind of work back through your book, uh, just to remind everybody on the podcast, uh, again, his book is The Great Dechurching. You, if you want resources, some of our church planners or even established church pastors, if you want resources to pursue some of the studies and, and get some of the resources that can help you begin kind of diagnosing some of this in your own context, in your own church, uh, dechurching.com is a place you can go to, to pick up or look into those resources. And you can uh, tune in to, to Jim's podcast as, as in heaven as well to, to learn more information. Thank you uh, so much, Jim, for being with us today. It's been a delight to have you. Uh, thank you so Thanks much. For, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it.